Mark 16 and Luke 24. This is Lesson 188A, Emmaus Heartburn, Part 1. You'll find out, if you don't already know, you'll find out why I named it Emmaus Heartburn by the time we're finished, all right? And while you are positioning yourself in those two locations in your Bible, would you bow your head with me and let's open in prayer. Father God, we come to you today with great thankfulness in our hearts because we know that what you have said in your word is faithful and true. Its principles and its precepts and its promises are forever settled in heaven. And it is the bedrock upon which we can stand and live and die. And we come this morning, Father, lifting up no other name to you but the name of the Lord Jesus and asking you in his name that during this next hour nothing would hinder the work of your spirit. May he have an unrestrained liberty to work in our hearts, prevent us by our thoughts and our attitudes and our doubts from grieving him or quenching what he would do. Give to us the peace, Father, of knowing that this world and our nation are ruled over by the living lordship of your son. And we ask that he once again would see the fruit that he has borne and be satisfied with the, both the spiritual hunger and the spiritual growth of his children who are gathered here this morning. Help us to be strong in faith in these dark days, to truly be salt and light. Thank you for the sweet fellowship with one another, fellowship that renews us, fellowship that is ministered to by your word and in keeping with what you are doing in your church for your glory. Thank you for giving to us an understanding of the greatness of the testimony of yourself because it is in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen. Well, in today's lesson, which is entitled Emmaus Heartburn, we are going to be looking at the third and part of the fourth of the Lord's recorded post-resurrection appearances. I don't know if by this point in time you have found less, uh, page number 190 in your book. If you've gone ahead to see that page, it's 190, number 190. I'm sorry for those of you who don't have any books. I am going to run to Apex and get some more this afternoon. But on page 190, there is a list of the 11 recorded post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. We have discussed already the first two. The first one was, of course, to Mary Magdalene, and then, secondly, to a group of Galilean women. Now, we don't really learn of the Lord's third appearance, which was to Simon Peter. We don't learn of that until after the record of his fourth appearance, which was to two disciples who were traveling from Jerusalem to a small village called Emmaus. It's only when those two disciples, Cleopas and his companion, returned to Jerusalem later on that day, what day? Resurrection Sunday, we're still on Sunday. After their back and forth trip, they returned to Jerusalem and they learn. They go to where the, other, where the apostles and other believers are assembled, which was probably in the upper room. And they, before they can share with them their great news that they have seen, encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, those in the upper room tell them in their excitement, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. You can see that in Luke 24, 34. So that is actually the third recorded resurrection appearance, which was to Simon. We don't learn about it, however, until after the fourth. So they're kind of out of, out of sequence. This individual appearance of Jesus, of Christ, to Peter is never mentioned by Peter. You know, he was really the inspiration behind the Gospel of Mark. Mark never mentions it. Nor does Peter ever mention it in any of his, in either of his, I should say, epistles, first or second Peter. He doesn't use it as a means to boast that he was the first apostle to see the resurrected Christ. Remember that trivia question I asked you a couple weeks ago? Who was the first apostle to see the resurrected Christ? It was Peter, but he never ever talks about it. He doesn't use it as a means to boast. You see, Peter had learned a great deal about humility, hadn't he? How did he learn about humility? The way we don't like to learn about it, the hard way. <laughs> he learned about it the hard way. 
Um, also, he realized that he was the apostle in the greatest need to be reconciled to the Lord. Not only had he boasted uh, earlier that even though, remember when the Lord predicted that when the shepherd was smitten, all the sheep would scatter and he had boasted, oh, maybe the rest of these guys, but Lord, never me. I would never do that. He had boasted about that, but then even after he did indeed scatter, what else had he done that none of the other guys did? He denied the Lord, even knowing the Lord three times. So <laughs> Peter never mentions his individual encounter with the risen Christ, but the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit made sure that we had the record of that post-resurrection appearance of the Lord to, to Peter um, by two other New Testament writers, and they are Luke, and that's what we'll be looking at in um, Luke 24:34. He only gives us one sentence, and then also Paul mentions it only in one sentence, and that's all the way over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. Yet neither Luke nor Paul tell us anything at all about the circumstances of that meeting. It was completely private, which is good in a way, right? It was a private meeting between the Lord and Peter. We know nothing about where Peter was when he encountered the resurrected Lord. I don't know, maybe it was sometime after he went to look into the tomb with John. And maybe you remember John ran, got there first. Maybe John ran back because he was excited. He believed when he saw the empty grave clothes. But Peter was mystified. He didn't quite get it. Maybe he just kind of sauntered around. And maybe that's when he saw the resurrected Christ. We don't know. I'm just speculating. We don't know what Peter was doing. We don't know what Peter's response was when he saw the Lord. What do you think his response was? Did he cling to him like Mary Magdalene? Did he fall down and worship him like the other women? Did he think he was the gardener? <laughs> Did he recognize him right away? Did he know who he was? We just don't know. We don't know any of those things. How long was their visit? What were the words that were exchanged between the two? We don't know. We simply know what we need to know. It was a private matter between the Lord and Peter. And it took place on Resurrection Sunday, sometime after Peter's visit to the empty tomb with John and uh, before the Emmaus travelers returned to Jerusalem. That's the time frame, sometime Sunday afternoon. We also know that it was a pivotal moment. It was a defining moment in Peter's life. The Lord had known about Peter's genuine tears of repentance after he denied him three times. Remember, it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Yeah, he, he was genuinely repentant. And we can be sure that Peter wept again. However, this time it would have been with what? Tears of great joy. He, the Lord truly was, as Peter had earlier confessed, he truly was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Peter knew it absolutely positively. He was alive. And I'm sure at that moment, those mystifying, empty, hollow grave clothes suddenly made complete sense to Peter. And we know, because we know the heart of the Lord, that he forgave Peter, even after his ter terrible failures. And I'm sure that the Lord made his forgiveness of Peter, well known to Peter at this time. Peter's burden of shame was lifted and his utter despair over the death of Jesus was instantly changed to joy, just as the Lord had predicted in his farewell discourse, that their mourning would be turned to joy. Well, obviously, since the other disciples know about this appearance of Jesus, the resurrected Lord, to Peter, when the two on the road to Emmaus returned to Jerusalem later on Sunday evening, Peter had gone running to tell them. After that experience of seeing Christ resurrected, he went and told the others. We know that because when the two on the road to Emmaus arrived, they, they're, they're told about it. And that's the extent of our discussion on the third resurrection appearance. That's it. Now, we are going to be talking more about Peter in days to come when we finally get to John 21. Remember how the Lord says, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times and all that. We'll talk more about Peter at that time. But this is the end of our discussion on the third resurrection appearance. That was short and sweet, wasn't it? At this rate, we, you know, we could be finished in no time. <laughs> Such a joke. But <laughs> the remainder of this study, as well as next week's study, 
is going to be on the Lord's fourth post-resurrection appearance. Mark and Luke both tell us of this fourth appearance. And it was to two disciples who were on their way out of Jerusalem to Emmaus, which it doesn't exist anymore, but they believe it was a village located about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. This was probably where these two people lived, although we don't know that for sure. We do know that, if you all know the story, I'm sure you do, but later on, we won't get to this till next week, but they invite, they're traveling with the Lord, they don't know who he is, but they invite him in. When they get to Emmaus, they invite him in <clears throat> to a meal, which would be, you know, Sunday dinner, not Sunday lunch, like you Southerners call it, but Sunday, the evening meal, dinner, supper. <laughs> and they even try to get him to tarry with them to spend the night. So a lot of people think that this is where they lived and they're inviting him into their home, which it could be. Or maybe they live somewhere else and they just stopped in Emmaus at an inn for, to spend the night and they, you know, invite him to join them there at the inn. I don't know. Mark's account consists of only two verses. But he does give us some tidbits of information that Luke does not. We're only going to spend one second today in Mark. We're going to read Mark 16, uh, verse 12, I think it is. But Luke gives us two dozen verses on this fourth post-resurrection appearance of the Lord to the two on their way to Emmaus. Two dozen. How many is that? Real quick. (laughs) 24. So if you add the 24 verses that Luke gives us with the two verses that Mark gives us, that's a total of 26 verses. And that makes this the longest post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ verse-wise. Okay? The longest, the most detailed. And therefore, I'm going to tell you, I have no idea how I ever did the whole thing in one lesson last time around. It's not going to happen this time. I think I I cheated the women back then. Some of you were with with us. I did it all in one lesson. Today, we're only going to cover the first 15 verses, but that's more than half. (laughs) 15 is more than half of 26. But uh, let's begin now by reading the passage. Mark 16, verse 12, and then we'll flip over to Luke 24 and read the rest of it. All right, Mark 16, 12. It says, after that, Excuse me. After that, he, that's the Lord, appeared in another form. Notice that? Luke doesn't tell us that, so that's one of those tidbits of information Mark gives us. The Lord appeared in another form unto two of them. Two of who? Two disciples. As they walked and went into the country. See, Mark doesn't even bother to tell us where they were walking. All right, now let's get more information from Luke. Luke 24, starting at verse 13. And you'll notice that when we look at verse 13, this is right after Peter and John had gone to the sepulcher and looked in. John, of course, believed. We know that from John's account. But Peter looked at the clothes and wondered in himself at that which was to come to, pa- which was come to pass. You know, he was mystified by what he saw with the empty grave clothes. That's verse 12. Now look at verse 13. And if you want to write in your margin, you could put fourth post-resurrection appearance right there. It says, and behold, two of them, two disciples, went that same day, that would be Sunday, to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. That's about seven or eight miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden. That's a funny thing, isn't it? Holden. You have holden eyes? (laughs) Their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass? There in these days, and he said unto them, what things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests 
And our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher. Who would that be? After the women, Peter and John. Right there, it's talking about Peter and John. Certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, (laughs) and slow of heart to believe. What's the next word? All that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then here is my favorite sermon in all the Bible. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The bad thing is that we don't have that sermon recorded for us. Oh my, how I would have loved to have heard that sermon. Hmm. If there was one place I could be, I, people always think I'm really strange because you think if you could be anywhere during the life of Jesus, where would you be? Some people say, well, I'd like to be in Bethlehem when he was born. Or I'd like to be at the cross and see his majesty on the cross. I'd like to be at the empty tomb. You know, there's all kinds of places. I'd like to be in the boat when he said, peace be still. You know what? Those are all wonderful places I would have loved to have seen him. But if I could pick any one place, it'd be on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples because I would love to hear Jesus expound all the Old Testament showing himself in all of it. I would have loved to have heard that sermon. I'd be walking so slow. I'd I'd never want to get to Emmaus. But we're going to talk about that next week. Now, a lot of speculation. We're going to set the setting right now, okay? So we'll begin by talking about who. Who are these two disciples? And there has been a lot of speculation um, over the years about the identity of these two disciples. Particularly, of course, about the unnamed disciple. It's clear from verse 18 in Luke 24 that one of them was a male. He was a follower of the Lord Jesus named what? Cleopas. That's obvious. Now, because these two people together do invite Jesus, yet unknown to them, to abide with them for dinner and seemingly also to spend the night once they do arrive in Emmaus, some have speculated that the unnamed disciple was the wife of Cleopas. Mrs. Cleopas, we'll call her, okay? There were many women disciples. We know that already. There, you know, the Lord had 12 male apostles, but he had many disciples, learners, matetis, followers of him, female and male. So there's nothing wrong with saying two disciples because it could be female and it could be Mrs. Cleopas. And those who say it was her strengthen their argument by pointing to verse 32. Now, I didn't get that far in our reading, but this is where the two, after, you know, Jesus broke bread and they realized who he was and then he instantly disappeared and they looked at one another and they said to each other, Did not our heart burn within us? And those who say this is Mrs. Cleopas say, look, the two of them are talking about one heart, singular. You know, as it says in scripture, the two shall become one flesh. It is kind of strange that they wouldn't say, didn't our hearts burn within us. And of course, now you know that's where I got Emmaus, heartburn. They had heartburn. They had spiritual heartburn. Have you ever had spiritual heartburn? I get it every week. It's just, oh, it's that burning that I don't, you know, I don't want medicine for that kind of heartburn. That's good. You know, their hearts were burning within them, not because they had seen him, but because what he had taught. It was the scripture that gave them the spiritual heartburn. So that's a good case, you know, that because they say one heart, mm, that could be Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. That's a good argument, and it's a strong one, but we can't definitively, dogmatically say that it was her. There are others who have argued that it was Luke himself. He's referring to himself, you know, Luke, the author of the gospel. 
Um, and others have thought it was a man named Amaon. I have no idea where they get that or who he is. Uh, maybe somebody can do some research and find out who that guy was, but some have said that's him. Others have also made the unknown disciple out to be one of the apostles. Now, Luke was not an apostle. You know that, right? So it could be Luke, but it couldn't have been one of the apostles. That It's not possible for it to have been an apostle. Possible apostle. <laughs> Get my tongue all tied up here. But the reason I say that is because when these two come back to Jerusalem to give their report, it tells us, look at verse 33, that they gave it to the eleven gathered together. Who is the eleven referring to? The apostles. So it wasn't one of them, the unnamed one, was not one of the eleven. And by the way, if you wonder about the eleven, because we all know who was not there. Who? Okay, I think I'm hearing two things. Judas wasn't there, right, obviously, because he'd already hung himself. Who else wasn't there that first? Thomas wasn't there, remember? So why doesn't he say the ten? Well, because Luke wrote many years later, and Matthias, was repla he, replaced, he replaced Judas, okay? So by the time Luke wrote, he knew that one of the disciples had become an apostle, so he just referred to them as the eleven, all right? But anyway, back to my, what I'm talking about, the identity of the unnamed disciple. Bottom line is we don't know. We don't know who Cleopas' companion was. Uh, what we do know is that both of them were followers of the Lord Jesus, and that's the important part. They had probably followed him for maybe a couple of years, maybe, I don't know, maybe the whole three years. They were followers. They were disciples. Jesus knew them. They knew Jesus. They didn't recognize him here, but he recognized them. He knew them very well. Um, so we don't know if, if this other disciple was male or female. We don't know the name. And really, to get right down to it, we don't know much about Cleopas at all either. We just know he was a disciple and he was a male and his name was Cleopas. What we do know is, as I said, they were disciples. And they were disciples who had lost hope. And they had fallen into the pit of despair and sadness which was a pit they need not have been in at all. Have you ever been in a pit of despair and sadness that you found out you really didn't need to be in? If you know the Lord, you really don't never, ever, ever need to be in a pit of despair if you know him. It's true. But we do tend to have a lot of pity parties. Who is the one who helped lift them out of this unnecessary pit of despair? Jesus, he's always the only one who can reach down and lift us up out of our pits of despair. And what did he use to lift them out? The word, the scripture. Whoever these people were, I think that we are meant to identify. I think that's why we don't really know much about them. I think all of us are meant to identify with their ex the experience of their journey. Because they went from hopeless despair and uh and sadness to everlasting joy, joy that I know never left them. And what made it possible for that transition? Utter despair to instant everlasting joy. It was when their eyes were open to behold the resurrected Savior in light of the scripture. That's the key. To see him, not just to see him and have an instant experience, but to see who he was in light of the scripture. Well, that's the who. The when. When did this account of the two on the road to Emmaus occur? Well, according to verse 13, it was the same day as all the events that preceded verse 13, which were the events of Resurrection Sunday. Because the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus was about seven miles, three score furlongs, it tells us, and on foot, which is the way they traveled, it would take approximately two hours. They arrived at their destination, we are told, verse 29, toward evening, when the day was far spent. So this is late Sunday afternoon. That's the wind. Where it took place, the setting of the story is actually in three different locations. First of all, of course, on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Second, 
either at an inn in Emmaus or at the home of Cleopas in, in um, um, Emmaus. And the third place was back in Jerusalem, probably in the upper room behind closed doors where all the apostles and disciples were gathered. Now, to complete the setting for our account, we ask the what question. The who, the when, the where, now the what. And this is found in the contents of verses 14 to 25. These two people had left Jerusalem. Now that travel was possible for the first time after the two back-to-back Sabbaths. Remember, we believe in a Thursday crucifixion, at least it's what we teach here. Um, Friday was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a high holy day Sabbath. Nobody could travel according to the Jewish laws on that Friday. Then Saturday was your regular weekly Sabbath, and they, again, they couldn't travel you know, more than so many feet on, on the Sabbath. So Sunday's the first day anybody can leave Jerusalem after the Passover. So that's exactly what these two are doing. They are walking to a village named Emmaus. And while they walked, they talked. They walked and talked. And the subject of their conversation was with regard to all these things which had happened, says in verse 14. Now the verb communed, you see that verb in verse 15? It's exactly the same Greek word as the word talked in verse 14. Same Greek word, the translators just decided to um, use communed one place and talked the other. It's a word that speaks of very plain and simple, you know, nothing difficult about this word. It just means conversation. They were conversing. But if you look at the word reasoned in verse 15, that brings their conversation to a higher level. They were in earnest conversation. They were in deep dialogue. About what? About the events of the past three days. They were questioning all that had happened, and they were trying to make sense of it in light of who they had thought Jesus was. They had serious spiritual perplexities, which they were together, the two of them, attempting to figure out. And if this was a married couple, I thought, that's nice, that's good. You know, the two are, are conversing, they're reasoning with one another, come let us reason together, and they're trying to figure everything out. Um, two are better than one, it says in the scripture, right? And it reminded me of, um, of my husband and I. When, when Frank first got saved and really I surrendered to the lordship of Christ and the two of us, you know, our first five years of marriage were really rough. I don't know if you've heard my testimony, but they were really rough. It was only the grace of God that kept us together. Um, but he was gone. You know, he was a Navy pilot, and he would have trips around the world, and he'd be gone for weeks and at a time. And I had three children in succession. And I'm from Chicago. You know, I was working on State Street in the loop, you know, city, city life. <laughs> and he puts me down here in the deep south, in the deep, wo- in the deep woods. I mean, I'm way, if you ever saw where I live, I'm back there <laughs> with the coyotes. And, <laughs> and I didn't know a soul. I didn't know anybody. I'm away from my family. Frank didn't want to go to church. We didn't go to church. I had three babies, you know, and he was gone all the time. So when he did come home, and he was the commanding officer of the squadron, so everybody's, yes, sir, Frank Caldwell, yeah, commander, captain. And he'd come home, and I was crabby. He'd come to the other door, aha, here, it's your turn, the kids, you know. Some of you, maybe you can identify with that. And so we bickered. We had a lot of, you know, we bickered a lot. And, um, but then he got gloriously saved, and it was wonderful, and I surrendered. Um, and then we were still bickering. But it was wonderful bickering because we were sitting at the kitchen table with Bibles and books all around us and we were saying, well, I think it means this. No, I think we're talking about Jesus and the scripture. And it was, it was wonderful. And that's what I'm thinking, you know, these two married couple. The greatest thing about this, if they were a married couple, was who was at the center of their conversation? Jesus. So for once, at the center of Frank and my conversation was Jesus. It was great. But these two are completely gripped with sadness and with despair, as we find out, over the Lord's crucifixion, which, of course, all of his disciples were at this time. Their hope in him as the promised Messiah had been, they thought, utterly devastated and dashed upon the rocks of death. That was the end. You know, their hope died with him. Yet in the midst of their sullen despondency, there were other things that were wildly entangling their thoughts. 
There were reports that very morning of women who had gone to the sepulcher, women they knew, fellow disciples, who had visions of angels at the place where the Lord had been buried, and who said that the angels told them, why are you weeping? He is risen. Jesus is alive. They had heard these reports, these two, on the road to Emmaus. And they had heard the reports of his missing body, not only by the women, but even by some of the apostles, Peter and John. His body wasn't there. They'd heard all that before they set out on their trip. Obviously, these two had heard from not only Mary Magdalene and the other women, but also from Peter and John, that the tomb was empty. And yet, even with those reports and the report that the, of the women that the angels had said to them, Jesus was alive. Even with all that, these two are heading out of the holy city, aren't they? That's interesting. They had allowed their hopes in Jesus to die with him at the place of the skull. And now they have their backs to the cross. They have their backs to the empty tomb. They're going down spiritually, you know, because any direction you go from Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem and you go anywhere, north, south, east, or west, you're going down because Jerusalem's on a hill. Even though they're going northwest, they're going down spiritually. Their backs are even to all of the Sunday morning reports. They've put their backs on all those amazing reports. But the good thing is that they are seeking to understand as they converse and as they reason with each other in their endeavor to figure it all out. And Jesus was the center of their conversation. That's a good thing. They sought the truth about him. So he drew near. When somebody seeks the light, you know, of the truth that God put in every man's heart, he has put, in knowledge, puts, has put knowledge of himself in every man's heart. And when they seek to know that truth, he'll draw near. He will enlighten those who are sincerely laboring to know the truth about him. I love verse 15. It says, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Isn't it fascinating that he drew near and was in the midst of them when they were in the midst of talking about him? Very earnest in their conversation about him. Where two or three are, two, two or three are gathered, there is he in the midst of them. If we expect to gain enlightenment from God, we need to demonstrate genuine interest and desire and effort in our quest for knowledge. It doesn't just come like a lightning bulb. One minute you're totally ignorant, and the next minute you're full of knowledge. It takes years, doesn't it? Precept upon precept. You need to strive, you know. Remember when he said strive you to enter on the narrow way that leads to life? It's an it's a effort, to get to know him. But it's well worth the struggle, isn't it? That's why I give you homework questions. I mean, four questions. That's a piece of cake this week. <laughs> but it's not so they just get spoon-fed. I want you to do the digging because that's where you get the heartburn when you yourself do the digging and your heart just sets on fire. Mine does. Well, Jesus point, joined them on the road. And this didn't shock these two for two reasons. When Jesus joined them in their conversation and in their walk to amaze us, it doesn't shock them. Two reasons. Number one reason, they didn't know it was him. It would have shocked them if they knew it was him, but they didn't. Why? Because their eyes were holden. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that Greek word actually speaks of restraint. This was a God thing. The Lord himself restrained their eyes from recognizing. He held back their eyes. Um, but there's something else that we learned over from Mark for why they didn't recognize him. Not only did he hold back their eyes from knowing him, but it says he appeared in another form unto them. Not as a butterfly or something, you know. He appeared as another man, obviously, but not one they recognized to be Jesus. That's interesting. You know, we could have a conversation about what we'll be able to do in our resurrected bodies. Will I be able to look like Terry Doby? She's not looking at me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but we'll be able to do different things, apparently. Like, you know, we're going to have the same kind of body he did. So, why did, here's the question, why did the Lord Jesus not want these two disciples to know him right away? 
Let me ask you another question as a follow-up. What would have been the focus of these two if they suddenly knew who Jesus was as they're on that road talking and conversing with one another? Would it have been, do you think their focus would have been the experience of him being right there with him in a resurrected body? He's alive and cling to him, grab him maybe like Mary did? Would that have been their focus, you think, or would it have been the words that he wanted to teach them from the scripture. I think that if they instantly had recognized him, they would have been so overwhelmed with emotion that they would have had a difficult time hearing, much less remembering all that he was about to teach them. They would have had a great experience, but I think all the words they would... Now, what did he say? Do you remember? No. My emotion, you know when your emotions are, you can't remember what people said to you when you're in a traffic accident or something like that, you know? And what did they need most of all? They needed to know the scriptures because their faith, just like ours, was to be based on the word of God, not on the bodily presence of Christ. If all they ever had in their future lives was their remembrance of having seen him on the road to Emmaus they may have faltered later on. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of people tell me about an experience. They've had an experience. But go to those people, and then and they say, my grandmother did this. You know, she had an experience, a religious experience. And, and for a while, she believed. But then go to them 20 years later, and they start, yeah, it falters. That faith is, oh, well, that, that just might have been my own imagination. Remember how we talked about hallucination? That might have been a vision, a hallucination. It might have been a delusion. Experiences can come and go, but when you are taught the truth from the word of Scripture, you are grounded forever, right? I mean, that is where our feet rest, is on the truth. We're grounded in the Scripture. They would never question again what they had seen and been taught that day. Yeah, the vision of Christ might fade from their eyes in their later life, but they could always go back to the Old Testament scriptures and say, I know who he is. Here it says, God himself will provide the lamb. You know, of course, the Savior, Daniel. I mean, all the, the Jesus is in the whole Old Testament. You know that? We're going to do that next week. We're going to look at how the Lord Jesus is in every book of the Old Testament. Of course, he's in every book of the New Testament, but he is what the Bible is all about from beginning to end. And if you don't know that, you're missing what the Bible is all about. And a lot of people don't know that. He's in every book, and I, that's why I would have loved to have heard this sermon, how he points out all the types and the prophecies and the pictures and everything about him. And then you're grounded. Do you ever have doubts about your faith? I hope not, but if you do, all you have to do is, I, what I do is I look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and the seven churches and how I know John at the end of the first century could never, ever have known a panorama of church history from his time frame. That was written by the Lord himself. And I go to Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 weeks prophecy and, and all the prophecies in scripture, you know, everything we've been through the last... 12 years, however long. And it just, I don't have any doubts at all. I know that this book, the whole book, is written by him. And that's what he wanted to do the, to these, these two. He wanted to ground them in the word. So he didn't let them know who he was at first. The word of God is the basis for our faith. Is it not? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. What was it that caused their hearts to burn? Was it seeing him? No, it was the scripture. And he would not let the scripture play second place to his physical presence. You know, the apostles and the other believers had tended to place too much emphasis on his bodily presence with them. That is why Mary was clinging to him. Um, and that dependence on his bodily presence was something they all needed to be weaned from because he wasn't going to be bodily present with them anymore. They needed to get off being, you know, on the, the living word and be instead on the written word. That was going to be their milk and their bread and their meat, is the written word, just like it is for us. 
So the first reason they were not shocked when Jesus joined with them is because they didn't recognize him. They didn't know who he was. Second reason they're not shocked is because when a stra- um, that was a very common thing for strangers to join one another as they walk. You know, everybody walked in that day. Wouldn't that be good if we still did that? That'd be good for us, healthy for us to. I think it would take us more than that because if it took them two hours to walk seven miles, I'm 25 miles from this church. It'd take me a long time to get here. <laughs> How long would it take you to get here? I guess we'd all have to jog. <laughs> We would not, we'd miss the lesson and get here at nightfall or something. By then it'd be time to turn around and go back. Oh, you Southern Pines people? Wow. Hmm. But then they walked everywhere. That was healthy. And while they walked, it was very common for people to join up with other people. You know, strangers, it was nothing, nothing weird about that or frightening for complete strangers to join together in their travels and they would talk with one another. You know, it was also safer for them to travel together. And it helped to pass the time more quickly. Isn't it a shame that nowadays people are in their own private cars? You know, you look in most cars, there's one person in them. If you're with kids and you're on a trip, you see cars with DVD players in them. <laughs> Instead of the, everybody talking, what are they doing? They're watching cartoons or some movie or something. It's just a shame we have lost the intimacy of what... I know when I moved to the South some 40 years ago already, I can't believe I've been here that long, but when I used to drive around Moore County, everybody waved at each other, everybody knew everybody, you'd go to Harris Teeter and there wasn't, you, know, you just knew everybody in the store, even though I was a stranger from Chicago, they knew that's Frank's wife, you know, that's that foreigner who's come down here. <laughs> but people were so much more sociable, it seems like, and you know, invite people over for a meal and all that kind of stuff. I hate that we're now, and this is justifiable, but we're more suspicious of strangers, aren't we? I remember I used to pick up a lot of hitchhikers. Even when the kids were with me in the car, I'd pick up people hitchhiking. Would I do that now? No way. No way. And I shouldn't. could be dangerous. But back then, it was nice. You didn't have to worry about complete strangers walking up to you as you're walking somewhere and just joining in your conversation, introducing themselves. And and it wasn't uncommon when you got to your destination. They'd say, come on, have a meal with us. So apparently after walking a bit with these two in silence, maybe he had entered, well, he wouldn't have introduced himself because he wouldn't be deceiving and say, I'm so-and-so. You know, he just walked up to them and and said, can I join you or whatever? And then he listens to them as they're mulling over the events of the past three days. The unrecognized Jesus then finally entered into the discussion. And how do you think he entered into the discussion? How does he always enter into a discussion with people? What does he do? He always asks questions. So the first thing he does is ask a two-part question. And this also would be normal Conduct for a stranger joining in with people as they traveled. But that's the end of the normal part of this story, okay? Because the conversation from here on is anything but normal. Now, of course, the risen Savior did not need to ask his two-part question in order to know what was on the heart, singular, of these two people because he's the Son of God and he knew what they were thinking, he knew what they were discussing even before he joined them. But why does he ask questions? Why did he always ask questions of people? In order to draw them out. Okay, This conversation would extract from these two their beliefs and their thoughts and their feelings about him and the events of the past few days. The first part of his question, verse 17, addressed the subject of their conversation. The subject. Literally in the Greek, he asks three words at the beginning. It's really funny. What the word? That's what he says in the Greek. What the word? You ever walk up to somebody and say, what the word? (laughs) But that's what it is in the Greek. What what the word you having with each other? All right. Now, the second part of his question, the first part was about the subject of their conversation. Second part addresses the sadness of their countenance. There was a lot of unnecessary sadness going on early resurrection morning, wasn't there? A lot. Should have been the happiest day of their lives and everybody's crying. (laughs) Mary Magdalene is 
weeping her head off at the empty tomb. The disciples, we even found out, were unnecessarily mourning and weeping, as Mark told us. And now the two on the road to Emmaus are visibly very, very sad. The Greek word that Jesus used for sad, when he says, you know, what the word and why so sad? (laughs) Uh, That Greek word speaks of gloomy. They were gloomy. They were dejected. They were despondent. They were sullen. They were overcast. And it was written all over their faces. They had lost their hope when their master was crucified. Like the apostles, these disciples and really probably all of the disciples, maybe other than Mary of Bethany, but all the rest of them did not literally believe Jesus when he said that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Whenever they heard him make that prediction, they always dismissed it to the realm of the allegorical. Or the, He always spoke in parables, right? A lot of parables. So they, they dismissed it to the, the realm of the parabolical or the spiritual. Well, you know, we don't understand a lot of what he says, so he's probably talking about something that's going over our head. Or they did what all the Jews did. They thought that he was talking about the general resurrection of the dead at the end of history. You see, what was it that brought about their sadness? It was disbelief in his literal words. And that is exactly what causes a lot of sadness in our day and age. Disbelief in the literal words of scripture. Oh yes, when they're obviously symbolic or parabolical or spiritual we know the scripture makes that obvious but when they're literal take them literally sad at the root of all sadness is not taking jesus's words literally so with their backs to the cross with their backs to the empty tomb and going downhill from jerusalem all they could think about and all they could discuss with one another in their deep melancholy was why the one who had seemed so promising had ended up dead by such a horrible and even cursed means of crucifixion. Didn't their own scripture say, cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree? Well, obviously, you know, he can't be the Messiah because God cursed him. Yeah, God did curse him. He became a curse for you and I. <laughs> so they're, they're perplexed, and you can understand why. So the himself was going to teach them some great truths about the divine plan for the Messiah's death, his sacrificial death. What day did he die on? What what was the day he died on? Passover? Passover? Right? What's the Passover lamb all about? Pointing to the coming sacrificial death of the true Passover lamb. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God, which comes to take away the... So he's going to teach them some great truths about the necessity of the death of the Messiah. And in doing so, he is going to transform their disappointment to delight. You know, the Lord knows the tendency of our weakness in the midst of difficult circumstances and heavy hearts. And he is concerned with comforting us. Isn't that why he promised to send the comforter? in his place does he care about your sadness and your worries yes of course he does that is why he sent us the parakletos the one who comes alongside of us to not only enlighten us and teach us and to indwell us but to comfort us but you see on the road to emmaus he hadn't yet sent the comforter had he so he himself came alongside of these two what a beautiful picture he himself came to comfort them and uh, to teach them. Well, it was unbelievable to these two disciples, Cleopas and his companion, to even imagine anyone not having heard about the traumatic events of the past few days. So Cleopas, in utter amazement, asked the question essentially, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who has not known about the things of the past days? Verse 18. Now, of course, you know, there were many foreign Jews in the holy city for the Passover. We said there was probably some, based on how many lambs were sacrificed, probably some two million Jews. And they came from all over the known world to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, you know, when you're a foreigner to another city, 
you don't always know the ins and outs of that particular community, like the people who live there, right? Uh, you just don't, because you, you just visit there. But in his comment, Cleopas is essentially saying, you must be the only stranger among all the strangers, among all the foreigners who have come to Jerusalem for the you know, holidays, the feasts, if you are yet uninformed and ignorant of all the latest events in Jerusalem. This is an important statement because Cleopas's statement actually tells us, it confirms to us, the widespread knowledge of Jesus and his crucifixion. This is only three days after he's crucified, and he's basically saying everybody knows it. How can you be ignorant? Everybody knows about Jesus of Nazareth and that he was crucified. By this time, probably many people also knew about the events that had happened at the sepulcher earlier that morning. You see, these things did not take place in a corner, did they? With no witnesses. They took place in Jerusalem when the city was literally swelling with the largest crowds of people in the, of the whole year. And that knowledge of his death and that knowledge of the third day absence of his body was carried by all these dispersed Jews as they went back to their various countries and nations. The word went out. Isn't that interesting how the Lord did that? God made sure that the works of his son had plenty of witnesses to give validity to the truth. Well, another question is then asked by Jesus, and it's another short one. <laughs> In response to Cleopas's amazement that he could be so ignorant of the current events, Jesus asked, what things? What things? In other words, tell me of the things that everyone knows about and that you too, that have made you too so full of sadness and despair. Again, he's not asking because he doesn't know. He wanted them to talk so that they could actually summarize their own thoughts. He's getting them to summarize everything in their own minds. He wanted them to share their heartache with him and talk they did. But the more they talked, the more they demonstrate how guilty they were for their own unnecessary sadness. It's really funny to me that both Cleopas and his companion tried to inform the ignorant stranger traveling with them, but by the information they shared with him, it soon becomes evident that the ones who could rightly be accused of being ignorant were them. They were the ignorant ones, not him. They begin by stating that all the commotion in Jerusalem and all their conversation en route to Emmaus was centered on Jesus of Nazareth. That's good. And then they really give a short synopsis of his life, his earthly life. But do you notice they put him in the past tense? He was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Past tense, verse 19. And we know from the words of verse 21 that these two, like all of the Lord's followers, had trusted that he was the long-awaited Messiah, but notice they don't call him that any longer. They do not refer to him as the Messiah because his death to them was incongruent with the office of Messiah. However, his death was not incongruent with the office of being a prophet. Why? Well, because many of the prophets had suffered and died, even at the hands of their own people. Their words also tell us that they knew of the power of Jesus. They say he was mighty indeed. They talked about there his miraculous powers. Everybody knew. No one denied that Jesus could do mighty deeds and miracles, supernatural things. And they talk about the great teaching of Jesus. Not only was he mighty indeed, but he was mighty in word. No one ever taught like Jesus. And they spoke of the praise of Jesus. Not only mighty indeed and in word, but before God and all the people. That reminds me of Luke 2.52. You know, we only have... One sentence in scripture that tells us about Jesus from the time he was 12 years old to 30 when he began his earthly ministry. And that's in Luke 22, which tells us he grew in stature and wisdom and in favor. He increased in favor with God and man. That reminds me of, you know, he had, he had favor before God and all the people, Cleopas says. 
So the two disciples testify that Jesus was a favorite before God. He honored God in everything he did. And all the people knew that. And so he was favored also and honored by all the people. But do you notice that they, these two demonstrate absolutely no knowledge whatsoever about the deity of Jesus? Nothing about his deity here. Nor do they have any comprehension whatsoever of his atonement work for sin on the cross. The best they do is refer to Jesus as a very powerful, a very good, and a very popular dead prophet. You get that? No wonder they're in such despair. And then they go on to tell their strange companion about the persecution of Jesus. And they don't hesitate here to indict their own chief priests and the rulers of Israel for having condemned him to death, to be crucified. In verse 21, the first part of the verse, they reveal that they have a much, much different view of the Lord's ministry than what it really was. And this was the common view held by just about every Jewish person in Israel at that time. What they admit is that they had been hoping Jesus was their political Messiah. And now they are not only sad at his death, but they are disappointed in him. They're disappointed in him. Look at this verse where it says, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Not us redeemed Israel. We trusted him. We're disappointed. And this is why their backs were now to Jerusalem and the cross and the empty tomb. And they're headed downhill to return to their former lives. They had not only looked on Jesus as a prophet like Moses... But they had trusted him to be Israel's deliverer, not from Egypt this time, but from Rome, from their oppressors, the Romans. They had anticipated great redemption to come from him. But they were looking, they were anticipating a social redemption, a political redemption, not a soul redemption, not a personal redemption. You know, these two people could have walked to Emmaus and back 5,000 times. That'd be a lot of exercise. <laughs> and they could have discussed Jesus on every single one of those trips. And yet they never, ever would have come to a satisfactory answer regarding their dilemma over his crucifixion based on their preconceived ideas about the promised Messiah and their misunderstanding of the word of God, the Old Testament scriptures. You see, much like our day... Their spiritual leaders were not presenting all that the scripture had written about the Messiah. What were they doing? Much like so many of our preachers today. They were picking and choosing what they liked. And what they liked had to do with a conquering Messiah. One who would free them from their bondage to Rome. They ignored those passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, and I could go on and on, which I will do next week. <laughs> All the passages that talked about a suffering servant. Many rabbis even actually teach that there's two, there has to be two messiahs. Because one, one suffers, and then there's, there's got to be another one who comes and reigns. So that, you know, they can't put the two together. The Jewish people, by and large, then and yet today, are only, are only taught about the power and the glory of the Messiah and the coming kingdom. Remember James and John? What did they want? The glory. They even sent Mama to ask, can we sit on, his, on your right and left hand when you come into your kingdom? They like all that part, but not, you know, they're not taught today. The Jewish people are not taught about his rejection and his sufferings and his death. Well, the two disciples were not yet finished telling their story uh -oh, to the unknown traveling, their unknown traveling companion. The uh-oh is going to sound, yeah. Uh-oh was because I looked at my watch. All right. <laughs> 
So let's look real quickly at what else they told him. In verse uh, 21, the latter part, they go on to say, and beside all this, this is amazing, beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. You notice, I don't know if you do notice, but this is the first time any believers mention the third day. The only ones who had ever mentioned the third day before were his enemies. Finally, now, some believers talk about the third day. Apparently, they expected something to happen on the third day. Perhaps because the common Jewish belief was that the soul of the deceased hung around, hovered around the body until the third day, and then it departed. So maybe because Jesus had spoken so much about a third day event, which they didn't get, but maybe he was talking about that. Maybe on the third day, his soul would come back into his flesh and blood body, and that's what would happen. You know, they were not thinking of a resurrected body. I'm just speculating. Or maybe they thought that on the third day, Rome would be overthrown. Somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, Rome would be overthrown. Or whatever their thoughts, they had seemingly hoped that something would happen on the third day. But now, it was three days since the crucifixion, and nothing has happened, and we're so sad, and we're going home. Nothing happened except, oh yeah, you know, um, the astonishing reports of certain women who had gone early that day to the tomb and reported that his body was gone. The grave clothes were there. It was really weird, but they saw angels, and the angels said, he's alive. And then certain of them that were with us went to the sepulcher, and they found, even as the women said, yes, his body was gone. The grave clothes were there, empty, hollow, you know. And this tells us that they knew all these reports. And yet, isn't it amazing that they're still leaving Jerusalem? Don't you think? I know we have the advantage of hindsight, but don't you think you would have hung around a little longer to find out what's this all about? But no, they're sad and they're leaving. So the summary of what the two shared with this unknown stranger traveling with them was that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet of God, was a prophet of God, evidenced by his mighty works and his words. He was favored by both God and the people. There were to have been, at least they thought, there was to have been something special about the third day. Actually, on the morning of the third day, a group of women claimed to have seen a vision of angels who told them that Jesus was alive. The tomb was empty, which was verified not only by the women, but also by some of the disciples, the apostles. Um... And yet, sad news, yet the two men who went to the tomb did not see Jesus. It says there, you know, yet he had not, was not seen of them. So they conclude by telling their unknown stranger, so this is why we are so sad. And this is why we are disappointed. And this is why we are retreating from Jerusalem. Plus, it will be safer for us as one-time followers of Jesus to get away from where the Jews are because they might grab us and try to crucify us as well. Now, as I said, we can look at them and we can say, how in the world could they have been so short-sighted? I mean, I could identify if they left Jerusalem, if they retreated from the holy city without having heard all the early morning Sunday reports, right? I could get that. Jesus was dead. They're going to go back home. But they had heard all of these reports. So again, what we see is that their sadness is the result of their own disbelief. These two needed, as my mother-in-law used to say, now my mother-in-law was a true southerner, okay? These two needed a good knock upside the head. (laughs) First time I heard her say that, I thought, what is that? It reminds me of the V8 commercial. Should have had a V8. (laughs) That's what these two needed. I, and then I, and that's exactly what they get. Uh, And I cannot imagine the shock of these two when all of a sudden they're seemingly very quiet and, and, you know, typical man didn't say many words. (laughs) What the word, what things, you know, just (laughs) the seemingly quiet and and somewhat ignorant of the facts, stranger, all of a sudden, out of the blue, says to them, Oh, fools! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not, that's strong in Greek, mandatory, absolutely necessary. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now in your lesson in the books, I go into the the actual Greek word that he used for fools. I don't want you to think he said the word raka. (laughs) Because he spoke against that in the Sermon on the Mount. Raka would, you know, be... Uh, degrading their characters 
He didn't use that word. He didn't even use the word moros, from which we get our word moron. That wouldn't have been very nice for Jesus to call them morons, would it? <laughs> he used the word an anoetos, which actually speaks of a lack of perception. And that's true. They were lacking in the perception area here. One who does not apply his mind to the evidence of the situation. There's no contempt at all implied in this word. It's not a criticism of their character. He calls these two fools because they have been slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had written. A very important word here is all. You see, they believe some of what the prophets had written, but not all. And the same is true for what they heard from Jesus himself. They believe some of what Jesus had taught, but not all of it. They believed him when he talked about the glory part, just like in the Old Testament. Uh, they believed the messianic power and glory of the promised kingdom, but they did not accept the suffering part. Remember the first time he told them, and Peter said, this shall not be, Lord, you're not going to die, no way. And he had to say to him, get thee behind me, Satan. So they dismissed what they didn't like. Isn't that what people do today? They dismiss, they pick and choose, and they pick the part of scripture they like, and they go with that, and the part they don't like, they dismiss from their minds. And they say, oh, that's just Paul's opinion. You ever hear that? No, I'm sorry, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, including Paul. Of course! He wrote 13 of our books in the New Testament. People, it's funny to me, I got to thinking about, you know, back then, the people, the Jewish people who had the scripture, they liked the glory part which is really the second coming of the Lord, isn't it? That's when he's going to come in glory and set up his kingdom. They liked that part, but what did they dismiss? The first coming, the suffering, and the death. Now it's totally flip-flop. People today, they accept the first coming, that Jesus came and he died, you know, and crucified and all that. But they reject, how many people reject the second coming of the Lord? It's totally flip-flop, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Hmm. So what we are going to begin our next lesson with is the Lord's unrecorded sermon in which he showed them beginning at Moses and then going through all the prophets how the Christ, the promised Messiah, ought to have suffered first before he then entered into his glory. And I cannot wait. I am so excited about this sermon. He didn't give it to us because he wants us to dig in and find it for ourselves. All right, let's pray. Father, we know that as long <clears throat> as we live in this sin-cursed world, that the cross of the Lord Jesus is going to seem as foolishness to the natural mind, the unsaved man, and the one with a doubting heart. But thank you that those of us who have put our faith in the truth of your holy word, thank you for the fact that the offense of the cross is no longer a stumbling block that prevents us from seeing the glorified risen Savior. We know that it is the power of God unto salvation. And for that, we thank you. We pray in your name. Amen.